Welcome to the Gibraltar Heritage Trust podcast series. Lord Airy's battery at the top of the rock is the subject of this podcast. I'm Alice Mascareñas, and this time we learn about the restoration works being carried out in Lord Airy's to help prevent any further corrosion and decay into the future. The project is led by Gibraltar Heritage Trust trustee Pete Jackson. The works at Lord Airy's began in October 2020, and for the first time this October, there have been several visits by groups from the Gibraltar Heritage Trust membership. The battery is named after a former governor of Gibraltar, General Sir Richard Airy, who served here from 1865 to 1870. Joining us in this podcast is Pete Jackson, who tells us about the project and the ongoing works, and we'll learn a little bit more about the history of Lord Airy's battery. Pete, welcome to this week's podcast. Let's begin at the beginning. How do you get involved with, with all this? Because you are essentially from the forces originally. I am, yes. I joined the Royal Artillery as a junior gunner in uh, 1977. Uh, the first thing I ever worked on as an adult, it was called me an adult back then, uh, was 25-pounder field guns. So I qualified to fire these things uh, over a period of 18 months. Uh, that's just the start of your career. I then moved on to work on bigger and heavier artillery pieces, up to 105mm self-propelled guns, which uh, take a lot of maintenance, take a lot of work. So essentially you are really qualified to do what you're doing at the moment because you know what you're talking about. It's also become your hobby now. How do you get to Gibraltar and how do you get involved with the many guns that there are around around Gibraltar? Well, initially I came to Gibraltar to teach an air defence missile system. So I came across to work with the then Gibraltar Regiment, Air Defence Troop, uh, in 1990, or late, late 89, early 1990. And I had no idea the, the amount of artillery history that was here. And I don't think anybody that really thinks about coming to Gibraltar for the first time knows this, unless you're really into that kind of thing. Um, and it's only as you get older in life that your priorities start to change, you want to do things with your life, you want to see things the way they sh you believe they should be. And I got involved with the saluting battery when I joined the regiment. To qualify in 1977 as a field gunner on 25 pounders, then come to Gibraltar and find myself uh, working on 25 pounder saluting guns, because they've now lost their status as a field piece, was something that stuck with me and I'd see we'd, we'd have to keep them clean, we'd have to keep them maintained. Then we get them replaced with other guns and they start to become dilapidated and they need work and it's just something that's sparked from there really. Lord Aries, when is the first time you see Lord Aries? I saw Lord Aries for the first time when I went up with the maintenance troop of the Gibraltar Regiment in 1990. Uh, to do work on um, O'Hara's battery and had a good explore of that area. Phenomenal for me. I'd never been close to an artillery piece of that size uh, in a land battery. I mean, a 9.2 inch gun that should be on a ship. To find it in a land battery, is, for me, was phenomenal. So for those who don't know what Lord Aries is, for those who may not know what a battery is, a gun battery is, ex explain the concept of, a, of it. Well, a battery can be one gun. It can be up to six guns. 
it depends on what that unit is deployed to do. Now, in the case of the ridge batteries, as we call them on the top, each gun is classed as an individual battery. And chiefly because of the size of the things and what they're going to take out of the far end. <laughs> it's a lot of manpower to work that. Now, when I worked on field guns, you normally find that field guns will have six guns per battery, which will all concentrate their fire into one area. Whereas with a, with a 9.2-inch gun, uh, that can concentrate its fire. It's probably going to do as much damage as a battery of six field guns. When you talk about ridge batteries, how many batteries are we actually talking about? And I, I don't think we, we, we're aware locally just how much there is at, at, at that level. Oh, wow. I mean, the, the batteries on Gibraltar, um, I've never actually counted them. There is a list available, uh, and there's batteries from north to south, from east to west, from top to bottom. There's, there's gun batteries and air defence batteries all over the place. In terms of 9.2-inch ridge batteries, we have three on the top ridge. O'Hara's at the southern end, Lord Aries just behind it, and Breakneck, which is within the military estate, just uh, behind Lord Aries' battery. If you work your way south down the slope, we have Spur Battery, Levant Battery, Edward Seventh Battery, South Battery, all, all 9.2 inch gun positions. Uh, Edward Seventh Battery was three 9.2s uh, in its heyday. Now derelict and used as part of the military training estate, but yeah, there, there was many, many batteries here on the rock. So how many 9.2s do we currently have on the rock? We have three in situ uh, on guns, and we have three barrels that are not uh, in, in, in placement. The spare barrel for O'Hara's Lord Aries, which sits at the side of it. We then have a barrel that's still in place up at the north end at Rock Gun. And we have a 9.2 inch, which was Levant Battery's barrel, which is down in the uh, scrapyard currently, and we're in talks with getting that out and having it displayed in some way for, for the future. In terms of, of military history, how important are, are these guns? And these batteries, because the, the batteries are there physically. These are the things that, that kept freedom. They guarded the gateway into the Mediterranean and, and as such. The 9.2s were of huge importance. Their presence and their ability, their accuracy, was a huge deterrence. And to, to have those in place effectively guarded our freedom and to some extent gave us the freedom we have today along with the soldiers that manned them and, and uh, saw through the, the worst of conflicts. Have they ever been fired in anger? I don't believe so. Now I say don't believe because there is one account in a newspaper which I believe was written in error where someone reports that Lord Aries Battery engaged a German ship in the Bay of Gibraltar during World War II. Now, you've got to sort of ask yourself what a German ship would be doing sailing into the Bay of Gibraltar, where the Med Fleet sits, during World War II. I think it's erroneous. Uh, I've seen no other account where the 9.2s on Gibraltar engage live targets through time of conflict. And they would have been worked on by the Gibraltar Regiment, the, Ro the Gibraltar Defence Force? Mainly by 28 coast coastal regiments through the war. Uh, and the Gibraltar Defence Force and then the Gibraltar Regiment in later years, yes, all manned those guns. In fact, we still have some gunners and uh, members of society today that served the Gibraltar Regiment and the, the later Royal Gibraltar Regiment and worked on those guns. So, today's importance in, in military history? Today's importance is they, these are 
landmark guns. I mean, the the accuracy of them, the range of them, the sheer fire, firepower they were able to put down is massive. When you get close to one of these batteries and see the size of the thing, it's nothing short of amazing for people who uh, have never seen anything like it before. They come across and are amazed by the size. And when they look at the details and see that it could fire this 360-pound shell at a speed of 2,700 feet per second when it leaves the barrel to go to its target. The whole thing, the, the infrastructure that makes that work and gives it its accuracy is massively important. What is interesting to see is when you go to O'Hara's and you see the manner by which they were brought to bear on targets that you couldn't see. Because we have two methods of fire. We can fire directly by use of telescope, we can fire indirectly, so we don't have to see the target. And when you've got a Levanta, you're not going to see the target anyway. So these methods were coming in, they were being improved, and all this was coming about as radar was being developed. So, that, yeah, they were hugely important, and they saw us through. Are these guns found anywhere else in the world today? There is, as I say, we've got one that belongs in Gibraltar that's currently residing in the Duxford Imperial War Museum. I believe Bermuda have one. There's some in the, uh, some in Australia. There are some sites around that may uh, still have 9.2s. And, as I say, they're, they're hotly sought after now. You find that some countries that are, are recognising the, the value of military tourism are looking to put guns back out where they can attract those people in. So are we pretty unique with the amount of guns that we still have locally? We are unique in the amount of guns that we have locally. And we're concentrating on the 9.2s and Lord Aries, but there are other sites on the rocks, such as Devil's Gap Battery and Princess Royal and Princess Caroline's, where those guns that uh, sit untouched, very, very few places you can go in the world where you can get close to these things and visit in the manner that we do. So we should take more care of them. That's essentially what we're saying, because we don't want to lose them, really. Absolutely. And the sooner we do this, I, I know when we, we seem to put a lock on something and walk away, uh, we do get uh, acts of vandalism and break-in and theft of artefacts from within, all of which just doesn't seem to matter. Uh, people can do it and walk away and nothing's brought to bear. They're almost left to the elements to die their own death and it's something I believe we have to sort out, we have to take control, take ownership and do the right thing. You took on the project of Lord Ares, it's a major project and before I get there I want to ask you, how on earth did those guns get to the top of the rock? Well you can actually see if you go online you can look on some YouTube videos and see old Pathé film of the barrels being taken up and as you go up the rock and you see the the big black cannon rings in the side of the rock with yellow surrounds as you go up the road they're using a traction engine at the bottom and chains through those rings to drag those barrels up the rock which is why we have this zigzag with a large area so the barrel can pass the zigzag and be dragged up to the next level without turning it round so you have to work that out at the bottom and decide which way that gun's going to point when you get to the top. You don't want to get it all the way up there and then find you've got the barrel facing Africa uh, from the wrong end. You need the pointy end of the barrel pointing that way, so you've got to work that out at the bottom as you move the gun into position. Uh, everything else has got to be manhandled up there. Uh, heavy, heavy items. And when you talk about a barrel weight of 28 tonnes, just the barrel, 
this was not a small project. And to get three onto that ridge, uh, massive manpower, massive uh, project. Do we know the manpower used? No, I, I, I have no idea. To and be when, would, when would it have been? What, do we know the years? The initial batteries were put in in the 1800s and they were six inch naval guns. They were then replaced uh, before World War I. We had guns up there. Around about 1900, we had guns going into position up there of 9.2. But as these guns are then made better, i.e. we get newer marks that are more capable, we change parts to the guns. So when I say marks, you normally find the first ones to go up there are Mark 7s. The next ones that we see coming in is Mark 10, because the Mark 9s weren't a very successful venture. And they were quickly, so there's only about 16 barrels made of Mark 9 uh, vintage, and then went straight on to Mark 10. Now, we didn't change the mountings, so we tend to have Mark 7 guns, uh, mountings, on with Mark 10 barrels on them. Uh, there are a few differences. We've got one barrel of a, of a later era, but the, the majority of Mark 7 chassis Mark 10. So did the, the, bat, the batteries change a lot when, when, when the uh, 9.2s were, were introduced? Not massively, and not in appearance. They'd look very much the same. Initially, some were on open embrasures, so they didn't have a shield on them. And you can find some lovely old pictures of breakneck battery before she had the blast shield placed on. But then these guns were given that blast cover uh, over the top for local protection for the troops that are manning the guns. Tell me specifically about the ridge batteries. Uh, do these link up at some point? The ridge batteries, both O'Hara's and Lord Aries, are linked by a communication tunnel through. It's very tiny, just room for uh, one person uh, to move through. The interesting thing with the link between O'Hara's and Lord Aries is when you're halfway through it on the left-hand side, there is the troop office. So you have a telephone point where, and a main entry point where everybody would come in before going to work, make sure we've got everybody in that we need in, and an administration hub, if you like. Breakneck does not have a tunnel that joins it with, with the rest of the guns. But uh, Breakneck, by World War II, was not, being, was not being used. So specifically, where are these batteries in relation to each other? On top of the rock, they're literally one behind the other. So working from south to north, the one you see very prominently is O'Hara's battery, the one behind Lord Airy's battery, and then you can't actually see the gun of Breakneck unless you stand in Lord Airy's or O'Hara's and look across the ridge above Catlin Bay. And if you look closely, you'll see the barrel of Breakneck battery sticking out in that direction. It's also very visible from both worlds in Catlin Bay. Do we know the level at which they're at? We always talk height at about 426 metres above sea level. That varies, obviously, to the positions, but the highest point up there being 426 metres, so one metre higher than the rock gun. These will, will vary slightly. So to actually get them up there, Pete, must have taken a long time. <laughs> I, I really am in admiration of how they achieve things. I mean, just the thought of trying to get a 28-ton barrel from the dockyard to the very pinnacle of the rock. That's massive. And the engineers of the day that were putting that together were on the top of their game to be able to achieve this kind of thing. In terms of manpower, how many men would it have needed to, to actually work those guns? 
you need a number of uh, men on the crew. All the crew are numbered off, uh, and we always tend to have an excess of, of men for the job. The guy in charge of firing it, or the, the number one, is the guy who'll be telling you where to... He'll be taking the bearing, the elevation, telling you what ammunition to load. He's the guy who's in charge. Then you'll have number two, which is normally the line layer, and the number two is the guy who's going to fire. We then have number three, and, and so, so on and so on, right down to the ammunition numbers underneath. Actual manning levels for the crew. At minimum manning, you would need eight men to fire that gun. But there are other things going on. You need the engine constantly maintaining, the pumps constantly maintaining. If anything goes wrong, you start taking numbers away from their jobs to do something else, then it all starts to fall apart. So the numbers increase to keep it fluid. There is a lot, a lot at manual level, although it's, it, it is mechanical, but there is a lot to, to get them going. Oh yes, yes, and to keep them clean, you, you, just to clean the barrel. When you look at the size of one of those barrels, you put that brush into the end of the barrel on a big stick, you've got to push it up there and clean. You're looking at 12, 13 men, 14 men to pull that barrel through and, and prepare it. And that's not something that happens every now and, every now and then. That's going to happen in between a number of rounds being fired. When you get a break in firing, the guys will get around and clean it and prepare it and make sure she's good uh, to continue. Now, for you, this is a very important project. Well, it's become a bit of an obsession, if I'm honest at the moment. I think my wife's probably calling herself a gunnery widow. I'm spending a lot of time upon that site. It's important to me because I can't... I, I don't want to watch another artillery piece rot away in the manner that they are doing. I mean, you go up there and you see the level of decay. And I understand that it's not cheap to maintain these things. I understand we don't have a department of gunnery that can throw money at, at these things. But if we don't do something, if I don't do something as part of a solution, then I'm just another part of a problem. So at least I can concentrate my efforts onto what I, I know, I enjoy, and I can make a difference in. And next time, we'll learn about Pete's project. <laughs> Thanks, Alice. Pete Jackson, who also returns in the next podcast to explain in much greater detail the restoration works being carried out at Lord Airy's Battery and the volunteers who are helping to bring this important historical site back to life. Since its closure in the 1970s and its subsequent handover from the MOD to the Government of Gibraltar, Lord Airy's battery has received several cosmetic makeovers from visiting army units. The current project has so far received support from the Gibraltar Heritage Trust and the Ministry of Heritage, as well as a £250 donation from the MOD World War II Tunnel Guides. But much more is needed to fully restore and open the battery to the public. You can help Pete Jackson reach his £10,000 target and help fund his restoration projects in the gun batteries, such as Lord Airy's and other areas of the Upper Rock. Check out his Just Giving page. The project also needs volunteers. And if you would like to get involved, send in your interest to execexec at gibraltarheritagetrust.org.gi or pop into the Gibraltar Heritage Trust shop to pick up a volunteer form. You can also follow Pete's progress of works on his Facebook page and share with friends and family who can also help raise awareness on this project. 
This podcast series is presented and produced by me, Alice Mascareñas, as a trustee, together with Chief Executive Claire Montado for the Gibraltar Heritage Trust. Original music is by Guy Valarino. The Gibraltar Heritage Trust offices can be found at the Main Guard at 13 John McIntyre Square. Opening hours, Monday to Friday, 9am to 3pm, and Saturdays, 9am to 1pm. You can contact the Trust on 200-42844, or check out the website, gibraltarheritagetrust.org.gi. This podcast is from the Gibraltar Heritage Trust. Remember, until the next time, keep a watchful eye on heritage.